you know, for a long time in, in uh, <clears throat> not just Baptist churches, but, but, but a much wider stream of churches, the idea of, of church discipline, I mean, it, it was widely practiced. It was, it was something that if you were to tell somebody a, a, about church in general and kind of what your church is like and what your church practiced, they would assume that one of the, the main identifiers of your church would be the fact that your church it practices some form of church discipline. It practices some form of, of, of making sure that people adhere to a standard of living, a standard of life. And, and oftentimes this would be represented in, in a covenant. And so you'd have members would come together and they would, they would sign a document that, where they, they profess to be believers in Christ. They have experienced baptism as, as adult believers. And they would come together and they had this document that's talking about what we're going to be as members. And how we're going to, to view the Word of God, how we're going to come together, the reasons we come together, and how we view God. And so it would be all these really positive things. But, but this covenant would be a representation of the fact that we view ourselves as being under the submission of the Word of God. And in some sense, under the submission, under submission of the authority of church as it is God's representation here in our community. But man, it, it, as time kind of progressed, and as people kind of looked at that, they said, oh, that's kind of harsh. We don't like the word Discipline, because it, it reminds me of, of my dad, and man, he was really good with the belt, and I, I just, thinking about doing that to a bunch of adults is hopefully as uncomfortable for you as it is for me. But this idea of discipline really fell along the wayside. I mean, one of the reasons it fell along the wayside is because people were just, they were afraid that uh, if, if we started calling members into some sense of accountability, they give their money somewhere else. I mean, quite simply, so a lot of churches came along and they, they looked at it and they said, man, seems like the Bible says we need to practice discipline, we need to discipline our people, we need to call them to a higher account and, 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 and level. But, oh, if we do that, I just, I just don't think we could do that because they're going to they're gonna move, they're going to go to another church in town. They're going to give their money there. They're going to, they're going to vote with their feet and vote with their, their pocketbook. And, man, we've got this building campaign coming up or, you know, pastor wants to take a vacation or whatever. And so they would make a decision not to do it based upon that. Other churches would look at it and they're like, look, we're not worried about the money side of it, but I just really don't want to be sued. I mean, that would be an awful thing if we brought somebody up on church discipline and they turned around and, and sued the church. That would be a terrible, terrible thing. And some churches looked at it and they said, you know, if we, do, if we do church discipline, if we really take this kind of harsh approach, which is what they characterize it as, if we take this harsh approach, it's going to alienate people. It's going to make them not feel good about themselves. And so the churches really moved away. Something that was instilled in the bedrock and the very foundations of Christianity was practiced for centuries was really dispensed, was really gotten rid of for pragmatic reasons, and, and, and not, not good pragmatic reasons. Really, in some sense, it was gotten rid of because people were afraid. People in my position were afraid of how congregants would respond. 
But you see, as we look at this passage today where Paul quite directly confronts us with a little bit of church discipline and tells him, tells Timothy how it is enacted, then we're left with a decision. This decision is, do we, do we take the words that Paul gives here to Timothy to be localized to the church in Ephesus? Do we say that, well, Timothy, really, only, you know, this is for you. Everybody else that reads this forever on after can forget about it. Or do we take seriously the Word of God? Do we say this is what God is calling us to? This is the revealed Word of God written through Paul. Do we take it seriously and do we apply it even when it's difficult? And even if people quit giving, even if everybody packs up and goes away. And as I look and as I look at what God is calling me to and what God has is, is told me that I am accountable for, there's only one option for me. Is that I take this seriously. And that moving forward, we practice what God is calling us to. See, membership in a church isn't, isn't an individualized right, but it is a group of us coming together and representing the body of Christ. See, it's not me making decisions as an individual member without any consideration of how those will impact everyone around me. This hyper-individualized sense of autonomy has no place in the church. And now that we've dispensed with all the pleasantries, let me read this passage for us as we walk through it. Paul writes and he says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul begins this passage, and he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. So the first question you should be asking yourself is, what, what charge did Paul give to Timothy? What charge did Paul give to Timothy? Well, if you're reading this very often, you're keying in on the idea that, that probably somewhere contained in 1 Timothy, Paul has highlighted a specific charge. Then you might remember verse 3. Then you might remember verse 5 of chapter 1. You'll remember that Paul wrote to Timothy in the beginning. He said, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. One of the charges that Paul gives to Timothy is for orthodoxy. He says, look, you need to go in and I charge you, I, I commit you to this position that you need to go in there and you need to preach a true and a correct gospel. And that when you encounter people that, that are espousing something, they're teaching something that's contrary to that, you challenge them. You don't just say, well, you know, they're just isolated into, into one Sunday school class, and that's okay. I mean, we've got a few hundred people, and if this one group of, of six, you know, as a professor that would always call people that had heterodoxy as nutburgers, I don't understand it, but he said, look, if we've got some nutburgers over here, and they're, and they're espousing heresy, but they're doing it in this one Sunday school class, that's okay. That's why we have walls and doors. The nutburgers can meet here, and everybody else can meet over here, and these are the people we work with, and we say, look, don't invite anybody to your class. Don't hold fellowships. Don't do anything. And please, 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 close the door when you're teaching. Turn some background music on to drown out your crazy. That's just nuts, right? 
Instead, when these, when these people over here are meeting and these six people, it doesn't matter if it's six or two or one, we go to them and say, look, your teaching isn't in line with sound doctrine. You tell me how you get what you're teaching from the same Bible that we're teaching. And we, in, we enter into dialogue together and we try and lead them back to an orthodox position, an orthodox regard for the Bible. See, that's what we do. We don't go to them and say, hey, look, you guys, as, as, as Matt's professor said, you guys are nutburgers. You're, you're crazy. Please go somewhere else. I mean, there are, there are a plethora of churches in town. I can write your recommendation. No. See, that's punitive, and that's got no regard and no love for these people. That, 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 that view simply looks at them as numbers. That view simply looks at them as a nuisance and something to be dealt with and not a people to love and a people to bring back into a true and a right understanding of the Word of God. You see, because at the heart, church discipline isn't punitive in nature. It's not all about exacting punishment on people, but it is about restoring them it is about returning them to the fold. It is about returning them to a right relationship with God. So Paul says, I charge this to you. Timothy's first charge was for right or orthodox teaching. And then Paul describes it in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And you'll remember that we talked about love and, and no greater love... As a man did this, that he lays down his life, right? Paul is, is, is giving Timothy a shorthand for the gospel. He is telling Timothy, I charge you to protect the gospel. I charge you to extend the gospel to the people you encounter, to the places you go, to everyone around you. I charge you, Timothy, with the gospel. And so he's told him, he said, man, you're entrusted with the gospel. Your charge is orthodox teaching. Your charge is the gospel. And again, he calls him to it. Here in verse 18, he says, I, remember this charge that I entrusted you. And he's building Timothy up again. He says, remember that you are my child. You are my true child. There's a tie-in between Paul and Timothy. Beyond this, we see some foreshadowing of what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 where he is telling Timothy this, this system of passing on teaching to the subsequent generation. So when we have good teaching, when we have a solid understanding of the Word of God, we don't simply hold it selfishly, but we pass it on to those we encounter around us. We're always looking for one other person to pour into. And then we're instructing that person to I mean, find somebody that you can take the, the thrust of this passage Find somebody that you can, can instill in them sound understanding of the Word of God. You see, Christianity is all about finding someone else to pour our lives and our energies into. It is about discipling those around us. He reminds Timothy, he says, Timothy, remember that this is in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. It's pretty likely that, that Timothy is, he is battered, he is bruised, he is, man, he is just flat, beaten, and exhausted. Working with people will sometimes do that to you. Not here, of, of course, but other. <clears throat> Take a little water break. If you spend any amount of time with people, whether it be as a, as a teacher, a banker, a parent, 
or just have a large group of friends, man, spending time with people can, it can wear you down. There are times when you guys aren't going to agree. There are times when you're, you're really good friends, you're better friends. There are times where you'd really rather just hang out with a different group of folks. And Timothy is, he's, he's tired, he's broken down. And Paul reminds him that God has placed Timothy where he's supposed to be. He says, remember back to the time when the elders surrounded you, when they laid hands upon you, when they said, you were set aside for this work in Ephesus. Paul reminds him that his work and his decision isn't something that he came up to on his own, but it is a group of men came together and elders, and they anointed Timothy for that task. They called Timothy for that purpose. And that is a great thing to remember as we are in the middle of things, as we are in the middle of especially difficult times, that God calls us to a task, and we have that to fall back upon. He tells Timothy, he says, that you may wage the good warfare. You see, it's this understanding that, that the idea that when Timothy is there in Ephesus and his, as he is engaging these nut burgers over here and these people that really just want to go on their own and do their own thing, Paul chooses to describe it as waging the good warfare. I mean, that's, that's not really... That, that peaceable of a term, that's not really this you know, super kind and, and friendly and bubbly idea. In the way that Paul writes it, we see that Timothy is to be engaged in persistent resistance against those who would muddy the waters of orthodoxy. That Timothy is to be engaged and to be persistent in attacking those who would tear down Christianity, those who would... Who would form it and make it kind of their own. You remember these people were engaged in myths and endless genealogies. These people were engaged in, in heterodoxy, engaged in teaching that is contrary to the sound word of God. And he tells me, he says, you need to wage the good warfare. And then Paul characterizes it. He gives us two qualifiers for what this good warfare, how it needs to be waged. He says, this good warfare, Timothy, it needs to be waged by holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. See, this idea of holding faith, he's not calling Timothy and saying, Timothy, remember, remember when you were a child and you made this bold profession of faith and, and then we got you in the, in the pastor's study and we talked about it and then we got you up and we baptized you. You remember that, Timothy? Hold that. Because as Timothy gets older and he starts thinking about it, he's like, I, did I just know the right words to say or did I actually make a real profession? But what he's calling Timothy to remember, what he's calling him to hold on to is the bedrock foundation of Christianity. What he's calling him to hold fast to is this invested faith where Christ came in and transferred him from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. What he is calling him to hold fast to is the gospel. What he's calling him to hold fast to is that Christ came in to reconcile sinners. Man, that doesn't change. That doesn't change on Timothy's mood. That doesn't change on good hair days or bad. That doesn't change if you wake up in the morning and have a flat tire or a, a car that fully functions. See, when we wage the good warfare, and we do so by holding on to the everlasting true faith, 
then we're able to do so day in and day out. That is objective. He tells him secondarily, Timothy, you need to hold fast to a good conscience. This must be of some importance to Paul because this is the second time he has directed us to this idea of conscience. Now, conscience is something that, that is, is wholly, in some sense, subjective. You see, because those things that are, that are plague my conscience might not be the same thing for you. You see, some of us are given to, to overwork. I mean, when somebody talks about an arduous 40-hour week, we think, 40 hours? Was this like vacation for you? I mean, because you're, you're working 70, 80 hours a week, and, and you're so driven, you're so given to overwork, that for you, work is made into an idol. For you, work is made into something that you derive the utmost pleasure. And so you don't mind giving yourself fully, 100% over into work. But for you, the thing that plagues your conscience is for you, you have made, you've made work an idol. And for you, work is a sin. Now we go to the complete other side of the spectrum and we find the guy that, that is, or the, or the woman or the person that is looking at 40 hours and they're like, oh man, 39 and a half, I'm not going to make it. Oh, I should have taken that break. And they start looking at it and thinking about it, and, and, and for them, they're just lazy. I mean, this person doesn't want to do any work. When they, when they think about work, they think of it as possibly being the worst four-letter word ever uttered in their presence. They hate it. They hate everything about work. You see, for them, they're lazy. And so what their conscience is pulling to, and they can't have a good conscience and remain lazy. You see, we don't see a list split out that tells us how we are as a group to maintain a good conscience. We do so individually. So those things which are sin for one of us might not be a sin for others of us. You see, and that's all a part of digging in. And allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. Not trying to live up to some list of what you think a righteous or a holy person should do. You think somehow you've heard that holy and righteous and religious people, they work 53 and a half hours every week. So if you can hit that, suddenly you've made it. You see, we need to listen to our conscience as it is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And we need to be constantly renewed and refreshed by studying, by meditating, by feasting on the Word of God. Not going to it for a pick-me-up. Not waiting until things are bad and you're like, man, this has just been a really rough week. I need, to, I need to open the Bible and practice some serendipity. Oh, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Thank you, God. That's not really helping. Be not silent, O God of my praise. That's better. You see, we don't just go to the Bible for, for a quick fix. It's not just a quick checkup, trip to the doctor, and he gives you some type of antibiotic to help you overcome something. We return to there daily, moment by moment, with an understanding that we are a sick and depraved people given to selfishness and sinfulness, and we need to feast on the Word of God. We need to be hungry for the things of God. Now, Paul writes, and he says that this is where the passage begins to turn. So he's told Timothy, he says, you need to hold faith in a good conscience. 
And now the passage pivots and turns, and he says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So the question becomes, what have they rejected? See, they haven't rejected both of these things. They've only rejected one of these things. They haven't abandoned the faith. They haven't denounced Christ. They haven't said that that, that Christ is not God. They have not said that there are many gods. They have not said any of these things. They haven't abandoned the faith, but they've rejected something. And so when we look at this linguistically, we realize that what they have rejected is a good conscience. See, over and over again, we try and get people to, man, if you'll just believe the right things, then everything else will be taken care of. Everything else will be okay. But it's not enough simply to believe the right things, but that belief has to transfer into action. You have to believe the right things and do the right things based upon that belief. These people looked at it and they said, I can do whatever I want in whatever way I want. I can treat people however I want to. I can work however I want to. And they they ran amok with their own simpleness. They rejected having a good conscience. What began likely as an indulgence or a little bit of laziness or a little bit of folding of the hands ended in outright sinfulness. You see, these people have rejected what it is to have a good conscience. They have quit highly valuing purity. They've quit highly valuing holiness. They have quit highly valuing fellowship with God, and they've allowed all these other things to come into their lives. So they rejected having a good conscience. And when they did that, the text tells us they made a shipwreck of their faith. Now, I don't see very many shipwrecks in my commute up 69 and over 30 and then cutting down on Burnett. I don't, I don't see those. Maybe some of you ha- have a commute that, that is closer to water and you've encountered some shipwrecks. But when Paul writes shipwreck, what he's talking about is, is this massive ship. And as it's going along and it's carrying goods and it's carrying people and as it gets crushed on the rocks, it is this horrific display of failure. It's the failure of of the pilot to control the ship. It's the failure of the crew to respond to the pilot, to the captain's directive. And this thing, it, it spills waste all over the coast. It spills waste all over the shoreline. But there's one thing about shipwrecks that is that is true today of car wrecks is that when you see a truly horrific car wreck, I'm not talking a little fender bender rear ending, people want to stand around and they want to talk about it. And they want to pontificate on how this thing actually came to happen. So if you see a jackknife 18-wheeler on the side of the road, you're thinking, well, he probably fell asleep. And somebody else says, no, there's a slick spot on the road. And somebody else says, no, what it was was that girl in the convertible that cut him off. And they start offering conjecture about how this thing came to be. But what we see is this horrific crash. We see this horrible accident. You see, when we reject having a good conscience, we shipwreck our faith. We make a spectacle out of ourselves. We make a spectacle out of Christianity. You see, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so if I reject what it is to have a good conscience, if I engage in behavior that is contrary to the truths of the gospel, then I make a spectacle of Christianity. I shipwreck my faith. 
And it doesn't just do damage to me and, and even to my family, but it does damage to the whole body. It does damage to the whole church. Because people look and they'll say, look, that's, that's Ridgecrest over there. Man, they've got, they've got such and such a member and, and, and he had an affair. Or they've got such and such a person and they're spreading malicious rumors. Or they've got this group of people and all they want is, is for their own purposes. Or at the most ridiculous measure, they'd say, oh, they've got the, you know, the, the, the maroon carpet people and the perfect carpet people and then the people that want stained concrete. That's the church of flooring. The warring floors. What an awful, awful name for a church. It's this idea that as we reject a good conscience, we shipwreck our faith. Paul gives us a demonstration of what happens and how the church should follow up. Paul, as he finishes his section, says that among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Even in Ephesus, Timothy's encountering problems. He's encountering these people that have rejected what it is to have a good conscience. They have shipwrecked their faith, but they're not alone. You see clearly here that Paul says, among whom? So among those that have shipwrecked their faith are two men, Hymenaeus, Alexander. And this is what I've done. I've handed them over to Satan. So as we begin to think in terms of of church discipline, as we begin to think of, of how we handle people that need to be disciplined, if you read the book Restoring Integrity, to biblical churches, they list three reasons that churches should exercise discipline. Uh, body odor, bad haircuts, and hideous clothing. Now, I, I don't agree with everything the book says except for the body odor part, because I think that is absolutely offensive. Somebody in the back saying, absolutely, preach it. The book writes that it is those things which destroy unity and fellowship. It is those things which violate purity and holiness. And it is those teachings which are false and non-orthodox. See, those are the things that lead to church discipline. Those are the things we go after, and those are the, the, that's the, the course we follow when deciding whether or not to pursue church discipline. And so you begin to ask yourself, well, why would we do that? Why would we follow that? You see, we read in 1 Peter, read in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse, <clears throat> starting in verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's talking about the church. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visitation. We pursue church discipline church discipline, because there's a world surrounding us that is looking for us to be hypocrites, that is looking for us not to handle problems, but to buy a bigger rug to cover them up. 
Not to lovingly go to people, but to, with, with some type of impunity to go to them and say, get out. We practice church discipline because as Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves lest ye be tempted to. You see, it's because it's coming back to this idea that this rejecting of a good conscience doesn't happen in a vacuum. We see quite clearly that Hymenaeus and Alexander are not alone. But these are two men that, that when Timothy and, and some of the other elders approached them and, and called them in their conduct, when they called them on it, these guys said, no. Man, we won't relent, we won't give in, and they're moving against holiness and purity of God. So you remember the, the most often quoted passage about church discipline is found in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And it's this process of one going and then two going. And when the person is still unrepentant and unwilling to relent and change the way that they're living, eventually the church gets involved to bring the matter to the church. And if the person's still in this public display and call for repentance and return to fellowship, if they still refuse to relent and give over their lives to the things of God, this is what Jesus says. He says this person is to be like an unbeliever to you, like a Gentile and a tax collector. He says this person is not welcome in those things that you would have to be a Christian to partake in. Now why do we do that? Why would we engage in such a, a difficult thing? Why would we engage in something that is going to be so uncomfortable? See, Paul gives us a picture. He says, I've handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Do you remember when Paul talked about the three things that he was? He said he was an insolent man, that he was a persecutor of the church, and that Paul was a blasphemer. Paul showed us how the transforming power of the gospel came into his life and translated all three of those things and translated them into making him a new creation in God. These men that are out there that are engaged in blasphemy, it's not just saying things against God, but it's their very nature of life. It's everything about, they, about the way they live their lives is opposed to the gospel. Paul says, I've turned them over to Satan. When we think about the realm of the church being the realm of Christ and the outside world being the world of Satan, it makes perfect sense. They are cast out of the church for an express purpose that their lives would be instructive that as the safeguards and fellowship of the church are stripped are removed from them which would have made a whole lot more it would have been a whole lot more pronounced in the first century when they are cast out of the safety of the church it would highlight their sin it would sear their conscience and the hope is they would learn not to blaspheme. See, when we think about the importance of church membership, when we think about the importance of belonging to a group of people and coming together to do life together, to do fellowship together, to study the Word of God together, to have a sense of integrity in our fellowship and in our church. We're going to encounter times when, 
when we have people that are unrepentant. We're going to have times when people engage in such malicious gossip that it begins to tear us apart at the core. They're disrupting the unity of the body. If they're not happy, nobody around them is going to be happy. And so they start spreading malicious gossip about me or about another staff member or about another church member. And what we are supposed to do, what we are called to do, is to go to them in a spirit of gentleness and kindness and say, stop. Stop. We call them into repentance. We call them to return to fellowship. We highlight the fact that they are being divisive and they're destroying the unity and the fellowship of the body. Whether it be teaching that they're engaged in or whether it be just outright heretical living. We call them to stop. We take someone with us and we call them to stop. We as a church come to them and we call them to stop. And if at last they refuse to relent, if at last they refuse to cease with their behavior, then as a body we exercise church discipline for the integrity of the word of God, for the integrity of the church, and we lovingly say to them, you are no longer welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. You are no longer welcome to exercise those rights of membership with us. Our prayer and our desire is to see you return to the fellowship of this body, to see you return to the fellowship of God. Because, friend, today you are outside of it. Because you are moving in a spirit that is contrary to the teachings of the Bible. You see, church membership is one of the most beautiful things we're given in the church because it shows us that we care deeply to the point of great pain for each and every member. It shows us that we, that we care that they not have just any teaching or any understanding that they want, but that they have true teaching. It shows us that we care not merely that they show up on Sunday mornings, but that they are plugged in and invested. You have to be plugged in and invested. And the larger we get, the harder it is to ensure that we are following God with the greatest measure of strength. You see, we are called to exercise loving church discipline. And we are called, just like Timothy, to be on the lookout for the strength and the integrity of the gospel and to encounter false teaching wherever it arises, but to spread love as we share the word of God with those around us. Let me pray.